This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, November 30th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So by now we should be purged, right? I mean... We've cleansed our discourse, no? David Edelstein made a bad joke about Bernardo Bertolucci and butter. Fresh air proved lactose intolerant. He is gone. Mark Lamont Hill, paid to give his opinion on international affairs, has an unacceptable opinion on international affairs. He can talk to the hand. The hand is wielded by CNN. We've rid ourselves of discomforting director James Gunn. The Atlantic lost Kevin Williamson. But gain Julia Yaffe when her crack about intra-Trump family lust proved too much for Politico to bear. I could also cite Megyn Kelly, who in a discussion where the topic was, is it ever okay for a white person to wear blackface, offered this idea, yes, she got fired. Now allow me to tell you my idea about that opinion. I'm against it. And her dismissal was, of course, about a lot of things beyond that one comment or stupid segment. But I do find it troubling. I do find it off-putting when a misstatement or a dumb comment followed by a sincere apology merits a firing to always go to firing for saying the bad thing. We're talking about in the world of opinion, in the world of let's put an idea out there. Let's get an idea back. Let's evaluate the ideas. Oh, wait, we don't like that idea. We're not talking about lies or smears or libel, just a bad, bad idea. Be gone idea. Rid us of the bringer of this idea. I will acknowledge that the examples that I've cited are a little different from each other. James Gunn was unjustly fired by Marvel, but I guess you could argue that they're the keepers of their brand and they didn't like jokes he was making years ago. And Kevin Williamson wasn't even really fired, just kind of unhired. And David Edelstein wasn't fired for actually expressing an idea just for being really insensitive about butter and a scene depicting rape. Also, he has his main job still writing for New York Magazine. But I hate, I really hate this impulse to fire for a regrettable line. It seems like it's an act of hygiene, yet we never get clean. Ask yourself, after all these firings, and I could have named dozens and dozens more, does the discourse seem improved? Does it seem better? Are better ideas getting out there? Are the worse ideas not being aired? Mark Lamont Hill was genuinely arguing for Israel not to exist, or at least not to exist as a Jewish state. He was doing so at the UN. I have some uh, tape of him doing that at one point during the speech. He took a sip of water and said this. Forgive my thirst. I I literally just got off of a flight from Palestine to come to address you this morning. Uh, And I was boycotting the Israeli water, so I was unable to uh, (laughs) quench my thirst. But thank you for your indulgence. Or for indulging me, rather. And then he went on to endorse the so-called BDS movement, which I oppose. Solidarity from the international community demands that we embrace boycotts, divestment, and sanctions as a critical means by which to hold Israel accountable. 
He ended the speech by calling for the UN to commit to political action, grassroots action, local action, and international action, which gives us what justice requires, and that is a free Palestine from the river to the sea. Now, from the river to the sea is an echo of Hamas's calls. Hill said he didn't know that or didn't mean that. But what if he did? CNN clearly doesn't want a commentator who believes in those views. But you know what? Members of Congress have those views. Rashida Tlaib believes in the so-called right of return. Over in England, Jeremy Corbyn, head of the Labour Party, believes in the right of return. Most left or Labour parties in Europe believe this. It's a widely held belief. And if someone on the payroll of CNN has that belief, I would say ask that person about that belief or ask them not to express that belief. I just don't know if the firing of an opinion writer or speaker or thinker, the firing of one of these people for expressing an opinion is the right thing to do. And speaking of the critic David Edelstein, it wasn't just that one joke. Uh, This was part of a pattern we were told because immediately after his joke about butter was retweeted, there were a slew of people citing other pieces of criticism that he's issued, including his thoughts on Wonder Woman or Hermione Granger being sexy. He is a film critic. Film is a visual medium. Perhaps you didn't like his phrasing of Gal Gadot being a super babe in the woods. Perhaps you didn't realize when he was talking about Wonder Woman and S&M that that is the roots of that character. But it was cited as part of a pattern that justified his ouster. Now listen, I don't think everyone deserves a job for life. I think if the Edelstein gaze was no longer Fresh Air's preferred lens, then they should move on. But the swift axe never seems to cauterize the wound. This development of troubling opinions from opinion journalists. It seems ridiculous. What we're really doing is we're popping the occasional zit of an idea as the plague of boils that is the Trump administration continues to fester. Now, I'm not arguing that one pestilence excuses germs elsewhere. But what I am saying is that there is no such thing as an antibacterial scrub. And applying it over and over again really just lowers all of our immune systems. On the show today, I spiel about books people also bought. But first, Jody Avergan is an old friend of mine who is the impresario behind the 30 for 30 podcast series. He's also host of the 538 political podcast. He is six foot one, 39 years old, 185 pounds. Other numbers... IQ in the high 130s, pH balance of 7.4, once got busted doing 74 and a 50. And as for the last set of digits, well, we go one-on-one about podcasting. Also, 9.5 makes an appearance. Wait for that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
30 for 30 is, to me, a lot of things. It's the iconic series of documentaries that ESPN commissioned for its 30th anniversary. It is now a series of compelling podcasts that are hosted and executive produced by my guest who's about to come on, Jody Avergan. But I want to also say this about 30 for 30. It is the epitome of the fact that you could work forever on a brand name, and once you establish it, it doesn't matter what the hell it means. Let us think of Chips Ahoy. You realize this is a pun on ships ahoy. No, you don't. No one has ever, no one has ever realized that since like 1952. Anyway, thought I'd throw that out there. Jody, how are you? I'm doing well. And uh, it is 10 years of 30 for 30 next yeah. year. There was a moment, I think it was before I arrived, but I've, I heard, I've heard tell of a moment when they were like, should we change this name? We've made like 57 films. <laughs> We've made 57. <laughs> it's been more than 30 Yeah, years. well, now they've made 100. It's 10 years since yeah. the 30th. Uh, yeah. So we should move away. And I think they did for like, one film uh-huh. and tried ESPN films. And then it's like, no, let's go back to this. We have this beloved brand. And so, yeah. So I want to ask you about your job at 30 for 30 and your job uh, hosting uh, 538's a roundtable podcast, which is the best and how you've been doing, if that's right yeah, grammar. So let's, let's start with the uh, 30 for 30. Series one, I guess, was just the idea. We have this series of great documentaries on TV. Can we translate it to podcast? Once that proof of concept was established, season two was, let's figure out what we learned from season one and do it better. Season three was all about Bikram yoga. Yep. So it was one story told Five over. parts, yep. Yeah. And now, now season four is all different documentaries, but... Is it just a return to what you're doing one or two, or is there more of a through line? Because I saw some commonalities, but I wondered if that was just a coincidence. No, I mean, if look, if you're seeing hidden patterns Uh that I'm not aware of, you know, like you're in a minority report or something. I have (laughs) this red tape (laughs) connecting all this. Let me know. But no, I mean, I think the goal along with the series was if we're going to do it in two batches, you know, generally spring and fall, uh, it affords us the opportunity to sometimes do one episode at a time, five different stories, and sometimes to blow out the season and turn it into one. But I think in the future we'll maybe do a season where there's a three-parter and then two one-parters. Or three, you know, There's a lot of ways to get to five or six. Yeah. And so I, I just like the flexibility. Okay, so the episodes this year are, you got a Hideo Nomo episode, yep. you got a Ricky Henderson episode, yep. you got a Women in the Marathon mm-hmm. episode. What else? What am I... Uh, we started with Jose Canseco. Jose Canseco. And the book he wrote, Juiced. Yeah. And then the fifth episode was about the 2003 World Series of poker. I love that one. In fact, I've loved both of your poker episodes. Yeah. Or there it was actually card playing episodes, yeah. With Phil Ivey winds up in both. And I was wondering, is there something to that that I like the story where it doesn't really depend on actually watching people move. I mean, when you watch a sports documentary, the actual kinetic action compels you. But I really like the ones that maybe are less about actual motion than more about the ideas of motion. Well, think about especially the one we did in our first season about basically a casino scam that happens in the back room of this casino that no one has ever seen right? and no one has ever been to. Think about all the cheesy B-roll you would have to use in order to paint that scene in a film. You'd have to have like what slow motion shots of like chips hitting the felt or whatever. And in our world, audio only, you can take people there. And so I think it's opened up a whole world for us in terms of stories we can tell. Um, The funny thing about the poker one that we did this season and 2003 World Series of Poker, which was the first time it was kind of on ESPN and then it exploded onto the scene. We we took a lens for that story where the protagonists are really the people figuring out how to make it compelling on yeah. TV. And so it, it's, it's, it's sort of... Um, you know, loops in on itself. It's a story about storytelling about something that is not naturally 
you know, that doesn't naturally fit compelling visual storytelling, but they found a way to make poker something that people watched. I don't know. There was a time when ESPN was airing like 18 hours of poker a day, it felt like. How far away do we have to be from an event for there to be an excellent documentary about it? How how Francis Fukuyama do you want me to get here about the, <laughs> the, the speed of history, yeah. uh, you know, coming to um, look I generally 30 for 30s have been. 10, 15 years ago yeah, is the sweet Seiko spot. Because is 2004. Uh, and the Ricky Henderson one is about his comeback, yeah, which was 2000, oh, 2004, Yeah, both in Yeah, New York Bears, 2003. So. Um, yeah, so there is a sweet spot of like 5, 10, 15 years ago, which I think two things happen. One is there's enough distance that history... We've forgotten it. Yes. And so it's reduced to like one sentence, and so then you can cut against it by providing context. And then there's also just straight up distance of... If people were really upset about something and there was some big fraught thing happening then, 10 years later, it's most likely that they are going to be able to talk about it and they will have buried the hatchet or whatever. Right. But I will say that we've been finding with the podcast in particular that, that the, the, the timeline is a little nearer and that we can do some stories that are five, eight. 10 years ago. And and again, I mean, I will say the speed at which stories get processed and get turned into history really is speeding up. And so there's some sports stories out there from last year that already feel like we had that moment, that narrative is over, all the sort of misconceptions are baked in, and maybe we can go back and cut against them in the 30 for 30 way for something that's not that long ago. The one thing that you do that no other audio uh, documentaries mm-hmm. do, and I don't like it, is you'll... Have a voice, and you won't ID oh, who no. the voice is. Why? Why? Why do you care? Well, I knew you were going to say that. No, be- but well, this is another. This I is don't a, know who yeah. the person is but all so? the time. No, but this is a big thing of mine too. I mean, this is a conventional wisdom in, yep. that I really Sometimes don't like. Conventional wisdom. I know, good. but I really don't like this. That every time you hear a voice, someone jumps in and says, "That's so and so," or yep. "That's so and so," or "Remember so and so," the person you heard. So- they're you know we we talk about this a lot, but I mostly want to want to ask. Do this, does the audience really need to know who's talking here? Does it matter that it's this guy who was a teammate of Ricky Henderson versus this guy who was a teammate of Ricky Henderson? Or is it just fine that they'll hear the voice, get the information, and we move on? And so we do that. We will montage like six voices together and oh, not ID them. Um, I know. And sometimes it drives you batty. Maybe we do it too much. Well, but I, that's I think, a big sort of thing I, I that I'm pushing I think the Madden for. documentary had a ton of that. And at some point, I'm like... Wait, was Wait, that the video game yeah, designer? Yeah. Was that the receipt? Who's saying yeah, this? That's true. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, <laughs> you, you you have to, you know, occasionally I'll do a search in a script and be like, when was the last time we ID'd this person? And uh-huh. so then you, you drop one in. But God, okay, the so word you, that's, yeah. I don't know if this will make it in the final thing. The word that's is my least favorite word in radio. Like, it's How just about overused. How about again? Again. John Tierney. Yeah, yeah. But, but, okay, I understand. I knew it was a choice and I know that you're going against conventional wisdom. But do you, and I'm sure other people like me, have criticized you for that? A little bit. Yeah. Okay. How do you know if you're right or wrong? How will you be able to tell? It doesn't matter. I mean, you, you're yeah. the well. When producer. esteemed radio uh, uh-huh. hosts sort of give you a hard time okay. on their own show, it yeah. might be a sign. All right, all right. Okay. What if I? What if I get a petition of okay. other people yeah. going? Okay, you like, get. Who could we get in here that would change okay. your mind? If I get Ira Glass, <laughs> yeah. to tell you, you really should. I mean. Ira Glass does it that way. He doesn't do it. He doesn't do anything because that's always the way it's been done. He does it because he thinks it's the right way. Yes. Look, there is trying to make this series that I really like a little bit. I appreciate that. And and we have we have. uh, uh, Let me put it this way. Uh, I sometimes feel like my job is to try and push 
the conventional wisdom all the way over to this end, knowing that there's a sort of force of gravity, especially since a lot of us come out of public radio, right. that's going to pull us back to the middle. And if we just land a little bit further out than where public radio traditionally lands, then I'm then I'm satisfied. And if we're further out than we should be, then you know we'll adjust and we'll as we go. But um, we're not going to ID every person at every moment. All right. So your other job, or among your other jobs, is to host the Five Thirty Eight mm-hmm. Politics Podcast. I really like this podcast. In fact, I would say that in the Slate Political Gab Fest is my favorite. Why? I appreciate that. Why? Why do I say that? Why do you think I like it better than the, all the other ones? Because we are a bunch of nerds who don't take ourselves too seriously. Well, I don't. I think a lot of people. I think the not taking yourself seriously thing. But this is what it is. It's always based on a foundation of, if not logic, a, yeah. a solid basis. It is the one that is. It is. There is almost no rank speculation not tied to a number or a fact or something falsifiable and i yeah. love that yeah and that's a you know that's just the natural i think stance of of 538 i think it's a site that is built on that and i think it attracts people who are that way and then on the podcast we think about that too i will say that it has been when we're not in a run-up to an election and we don't have like a forecast mm-hmm. to talk about yeah and especially given our political environment right now there are times when it's tough there's times when the dominant political story of the moment doesn't have data that will speak to it and i think we will admit that as much as possible do you cover it or not cover it sometimes i think the best thing we can do is to not talk about something yeah right and i think that that's like a health often the healthiest choice but then there are other times when we will i think as can be done just in podcasts in general, you can acknowledge the sort of limitations of your conversation and talk through your thinking. And then I think there's also times, you know, often we we find ourselves just discussing the political implication of something, right? So we can't address the crazy thing that Trump said, but we can talk about what the the fallout right. from it is going to be. Um, but, but also, yeah, but also with that, the answer that your your panelists will say is not motivated by them seeing the world through a partisan lens, correct. and it's not motivated by them wanting something to be true. Like I just always think Nate by his Nate Silver by his personality will say, "Well, I think this is how it could go," and I'll base it on three yes. pieces of history. And here are the other ways in which it could go for these other reasons. I mean, I think you know more than anything. I think there's this there's this misconception about 538 that it is a a site that is built on landing on one sort of firm number yeah. and I actually think much more than anything I think of 538 as a as a as a sort of way of thinking through stuff and it's much more about process than outcome and to me the most satisfying things are just that the 538 approach forces you to just stop and look around and assess all of the inputs and variables and biases and all those things, and then do some sort of rigorous thinking. So here's my last question or insight. It does strike me, so you you have a documentary series and you have a talk show. Documentaries are about looking backwards. Mm-hmm. Talk shows, especially your talk show, about looking forwards. Can it ever be different? What do you mean, can it ever can be Can you different? ever do a documentary about some sort of speculation on the future? Can you oh. ever, because documentaries are always, let us get the things that happened and document yeah. them. Can you ever do well, I mean, a future-looking it... documentary or a talk show really that's not about the recent past, a talk show about stuff that happened in 2004? I think you can do a talk show about something that happened in the recent past. And I think that there's a lot of, there's this really interesting thing happening in podcasting in particular now where there's this middle ground between documentaries and talk shows. I would put maybe slow burn kind of in there slow burn i think this season moved more towards documentary but season one was kind of a conversation talk show but a but historical but can you do a documentary that looks forward i mean aren't you just describing sort of like 
news. I mean, you can do a documentary about this moment. You can do a documentary about something that feels like the cutting edge. That's less satisfying to me. I mean, I think the most satisfying thing to me in all of journalism basically is to look to the past, uh, explode, you know, myths that have been baked in and then find echoes and lessons. And I, and I think especially given the sort of frantic pace of news right now, I find it really satisfying to be able to take a step back. This is why I thought slow burn was so compelling uh, to take a step back, look at something in the past that still feels like it's talking to this moment, but it's, you're not in that sort of super frenetic headspace. So I would just, I did want to ask you about the Jose Canseco story. So, it is revealed that that was the second hottest book that the publisher was sitting <laughs> yes, on. Yes, I, I wrote down that I wanted to bring this up with you. And the, the hottest book, the one that they thought was going to really sell, was about the man with the world's longest penis. Uh-huh. Yeah, Mr. Uh, Big. Mr. Big. I think his name is Jonah Falcon. Is that the, is Did that you guys right? find him? Yeah. I was just looking up. We tracked him down for the piece, too. You did? Well, we originally, you did. in my mind, in my mind, there was going to be like a solid 10 minutes yeah, on Mr. Yeah, Big and it yeah. ended up being like 90 seconds or so. But it is one of my favorite <laughs> moments in the whole series. And I think is, a, is one of my, you know, it shows that you can take these little diversions when you're doing a long form documentary and point out that the publishers were literally choosing between writing a book about Mr. Big, the guy with the world's largest penis, or this Jose Canseco guy who has something to say about steroids, but I don't really know what it is. And they went to Mr. Big first, yeah. and then they passed on it, and the, the Canseco book was the fallback. That was in the original pitch yeah. from the very first meeting about this story. The there was the little tidbit, and yeah. it's so good. It's so a good. big tidbit. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, big. yeah. Okay, I mean, I want a 30 for 30 extra just on the man with the biggest penis. Okay. I don't know if it's a sports <laughs> angle, but maybe it could be the news angle. You know, uh, Whitaker endorsed the masculine toilet for men with oh, large penises. Yeah. And I was reading through the specs and they said it would be, it's going to give uh, an extra 12 inches of room. And I looked up the man with the biggest penis has a nine and a half inch penis. So He's I mean, good. I think that, well, I think that calls into question Whitaker's uh, uh, sensibility on this. If he thinks he has to go 12 inches when the world's biggest penis man be, he's be penis he's at only, a level. He's only nine and a half. I don't want to know. No, what that's you're bigger than that. No, we're talking that's bigger. Than we're that. talking flaccid. Yeah, we did look up Mr. Big. It was so good. Oh God, I love that tape. Jody Avergan is. I'm the host and senior producer. He's the host and senior producer of the Thirty for Thirty podcast, which, among other things, has the longest list of credits in the world of yes, podcasts. Yes, yes, and that's another thing. Is this another thing we're going to fight about? I do that on purpose. Um, that's good. No, uh, no like many it. hands go yeah. into these things, and yeah. I also, frankly. I have a whole I have a whole riff on that which I won't get into, but I try and give everyone some love at the yeah. end. Yeah, I mean when you're crediting the guy who invented the mixing board, yes. <laughs> that's maybe excessive. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jody. I really appreciate it. Thanks. And now the spiel: Donald Trump defended his business dealings with Russia during his campaign, not as a contradiction of his denials that he had business dealings with Russia during his campaign, but rather as, here's the whole quote from a tweet, very legal and very cool. Yes, very legal, very cool. It is perhaps that which is very legal and very cool. Maybe think a lot of things fit in that category. You're wrong. Think about the things that are outside that category. You have everything that is very legal, but very uncool like squirts or red velvet cake or the third hour of the Today Show or the Pontiac Grand Prix or ordering bottomless soup at the Olive Garden or chaining yourself to Twitter headquarters if they don't care that you've chained yourself to Twitter headquarters. And then there are the things that are very illegal, but very cool, like 
taking a Russian fox on the subway or going 80 in my dad's new Porsche or doing Molly with El Chapo and then drawing an accurate sketch about it afterwards. Then there is the very illegal but very uncool tax avoidance scams, violating the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, crapping all over the emoluments clause, using an off-brand hairspray that exceeds chlorofluorocarbon standards, tickling pandas without their permission, and purposeful deception of real estate valuation as an effort to evade gift and estate tax law. But the president sees his Russian actions as very cool, very legal. Okay, fine. And then he did engage in something that is legal, clearly, and also, depending on your opinion of the authors in question, either cool or uncool. He tweeted a bunch of book recommendations. With all the new books coming out, you can't forget two of the great originals written by at Greg Jarrett and at Judge Janine Puro. Both books went to number one. Go get them now. The phony witch hunt is well explained. I do need to get them because I need an explanation of this phrase, the phony witch hunt. Since witches aren't real, therefore witch hunts are phony, is a phony witch hunt a real, legitimate effort? This is how the rules of double negatives work. It's hard to know. But there I was dwelling on Donald J. Trump's next recommendation. D. Bongino's new book, Spygate, The attempted sabotage of Donald J. Trump is terrific. He's tough. He's smart. And he really gets it. His book is on sale now. I got to tell you, if Donald Trump really wants to stick it to Amazon, these book recommendations are just doing the trick. Oh, who are we kidding? Mueller has his entire case in the cloud. That's where the real money for Amazon is. Trump goes on to endorse the dismal science, which is, of course, being one of his appointees to the EPA. No, it's economics. When he tweets at Stephen Moore and Arthur Laffer, two very talented men, have just completed an incredible book on my economic policies, both capitalized, or as they call it, hashtag Trumponomics. So I looked up this book on Amazon and in the part on Amazon where it says people who bought this book also bought this. Here's what it says they also bought. If I'm elected, you won't lose one plant You'll have plants coming into this country. You're going to have jobs again. You won't lose one plant. I promise you. I promise you. Yep, they bought that. They bought that the carrier plant was coming back and that U.S. Steel was opening plants and that trade wars were easy to win and that tax cuts were paying for themselves. They bought all of that. But in all seriousness, I clicked through all the books that the people who bought Trumponomics also bought. And it was, you know, all those other books that Trump was just tweeting today. Plus, there was Tucker Carlson's book and the complete works of Ann Coulter, though not available in the original German, and Lou Dobbs, available in the original Orc. Actually, Orcs had no language of their own. Theirs was a compilation of various languages, and it was called by Tolkien, The Black Speech, somewhat of an irony, Lou Dobbs, Ann Coulter. But do you know what book is actually cited in the people who also bought Trumponomics, also bought this. The biography of Bill Belichick. Yes, New England Patriots head coach Bill Belichick readers also love themselves the Trumponomics. I hope that Tom Brady's offense does a little better than the deficit. Now, I am aware of the what did they buy. They also bought this thing because of my book. Upon further review, was on a list yesterday of 60 books that are recommended for the holidays. And and yes, if you don't know that I edited a collection of sports what-ifs, doesn't make you a bad person. It makes me a bad pitch man. The point is, well, the point is to subtly plug upon further review by turns hilarious and insightful, featuring past just guests Lee Monville, Jesse Eisenberg, 
Robert Siegel, Steve Kornacki, Bob Ryan, Jeremy Schapp, and dozens more. But I was interested to say the other books on this list of the Newsweek uh, 60 recommended. And I started clicking them, and it took you to the Amazon page. And we found, for instance, if you clicked another sports book, Jane Levy's biography of Babe Ruth, you click that and you say, and you see what people also bought. Turns out they also bought Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. And then another recommended book was Barbara Kingsolver's Unsheltered. And you know what book people who bought that also bought? Michelle Obama's book, Unbecoming. Wait a minute. Also recommended, The Witch Elm by Tana French. A skull is found in an elm on the estate of a charming Irish publicist's ancestral home. People also bought Michelle Obama's Becoming. How about the Jeff Tweedy memoir, Let's Go So We Can Get Back? People also bought two books, The Beastie Boys book and Michelle Obama's Becoming. Hey, first ladies. And then I just knew what I had to do. I suspected it would be the case, but I had to check. I went to the Amazon page for my book. Upon further review, people who bought a collection of 31 sports what-if essays also bought Becoming with Michelle Obama. Yes, Becoming has become the best-selling book of the year. Move over, Woodward. Recede into the rear view, Justin Timberlake's hindsight. Die, die, Bill O'Reilly's killing the SS. The Michelle Obama book is more than enough to counteract all the leaden weight weighing down that presidential bookshelf. It brings light into the Mordor-esque depths of the Fox News Channel and Regnery Press. And people who bought it also bought a little bit of hope, a little bit of light, and a measure of truth. And also upon further review, which makes a great stocking stuffer. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, the team of Very Legal and Very Cool. Slate senior producer TJ Raphael also bought Unbecoming, a collection of things Rush Limbaugh has said about Michelle Obama over the years. The gist, I got to tell you, I just apologize for it all. I apologize for everything, and I'm aware that this apology will not be enough to save my job or this show. So then I can only ask you to do this. Check out my SoundCloud. Please note the gist is no longer available on SoundCloud. Oomperu, deperu, dupuru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>